crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. I am your host, Michelle Macklin. Today, we are talking to Anna Reed, author of A Nasty Little War, The West's Fight to Reverse the Russian Revolution, put out by Basic Books. And I think in Basic Books in the United States, it was just launched this past Tuesday. So it's a brand new book out. And it is a great book. Can't wait to talk to Anna about this. Anna Reed read law at Oxford University and studied Russian history at the University College London School of Slavonic and East European Studies. She has worked as a consultant and business journalist. She actually lived in Kiev, where she was the Ukraine correspondent for The Economist from 1993 to 1995. And these days, Anna finds herself as an author extraordinaire, writing a lot of books on Ukraine, history, Russia, and we are delighted to have you here, Anna. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. This is a pocket of history pretty much unknown in the West. And as you're, you write in your conclusions, this little piece of history actually still reverberates in geopolitics today. So let's start from the very beginning. And if you will, explain Russia's civil war and also in that greater context of World War I. Russia drops out of World War I with the revolution in 1917, with the Bolshevik coup at the end of the year, which ousts a provisional government, this, this very weak temporary government that notionally took power when Nicholas II, the Tsar, abdicated in February of 1917. Russia, the Eastern Front, had always been rather weak. When the First World War opened, you know, the Russian ally, new sort of Russian ally for France, France and Britain had been welcomed. And it was thought that this great Russian war machine, this enormous army would sort of roll, roll westwards and sort of flatten the Germans. And then there were lots of, um, it was known as the Russian steamroller. And there were lots of cartoons of this sort of steamroller with a sort of bearded Russian peasant at the wheel, sort of rolling over all these lines of pickelhaub, but in the pointy German First World War helmets. That didn't happen. The Russian armies proved well, not very effectual. You know, there were, there were more defeats than victories. And in 1917, they totally, after Nicholas's abdication, they began to fall apart and their desertion rates soared and people stopped obeying their officers. And Lenin, then, when he came to power, his slogan was land, bread, peace. And he knew that he had to give the Russian population peace um, in order to stay in power, even if that meant enormous territorial concessions. So he started talks with German high command in Brest-Litovsk in this border town, and uh, peace was concluded in March of 1918. This absolutely dismayed German troops that occupied Ukraine and the Baltics under this deal. The Russian civil war breaks out at about the same time in, in 1918, because Lenin and Trotsky, their hold on Russia is still extremely fragile. They have vitally the support of the garrisons in Moscow and Petersburg. So they've got the two biggest cities by far of the Russian Empire, and they've got sort of heartland European Russia. But at the same time, lots of other groups take power. Um, in terms of committees are formed, sort of scratch militias are formed in all sorts of other cities around the 
old, old empire's peripheries, and they declare themselves governments. So you've got literally dozens of self-styled governments, and and war starts. You know, fi- fighting starts between them. Anna, can I ask you a question? Why didn't these disparate groups around that were outside of Moscow and and Petersburg and European portion of Russia, why were they against Lenin at this point? What was their thinking as they were kind of revolting, I guess, revolting or they were going against Lenin and Trotsky's plans? Well, remember, the Bolsheviks were not the largest and most popular opposition group in Russia. So there were elections held at the end of 1918 for something called a constituent assembly that was supposed to then gather you know properly represented assembly and come up with a new constitution for the for the country and then you know full elections would be held and so on now none of that happened because the bolsheviks closed down the constituent assembly on the first day when it got together but in that was because in those elections which were relatively fair and free they didn't do very well. And the biggest party on the left was another group called the Socialist Revolutionaries, which itself was split into a more radical wing and a more um, sort of nonviolent wing. What these governments, so, you know, the Bolsheviks were not universally popular to start with, particularly not in the countryside. And there was a massive power vacuum. You know, you've got these cities where with the Bolshevik coup, which people didn't accept, you know, somebody had to take power. So you've got Generally, local sort of power brokers, maybe maybe existing officials and politicians and landowners and business people and so on, getting together and declaring governments, and they covered the whole political spectrum from the the socialist revolutionaries, you know, the also revolutionary like the Bolsheviks, but not quite as radical, to the ultra conservatives. Uh, so, for example, you get a bunch of Tsarist generals who tried to throw out the provisional government in the summer of 1917. They tried to launch a military coup and that, that had failed and they'd been imprisoned. And then in the chaos of the Bolshevik coup, they escape imprisonment and they go down to the south, to the Kuban, so to, to the east of the Black Sea. And they gather together a volunteer army, very long on officers, very short on soldiers and declare down there. So you've got all these different groups spread throughout the empire from the far left to the ultra-conservative right, assuming, I mean, this was mainstream opinion everywhere at the time, um, abroad as well, that, you know, the Bolsheviks aren't going to last. You know, they're this tiny, they're this small group of you know, until recently, just of exiled pamphleteers. They've got no experience of government or administration whatsoever or of um, military leadership. And it's assumed that they'll last weeks, months, you know, no more. Okay. Um, and that, of course, doesn't happen. But that is that is the stage. Um, that's the stage as it's set in the beginning as it's of set. 1918. Okay. In 1918. Okay, so the Western governments, if they think the Bolsheviks are going to fall, so I'm talking the Brits, I'm talking the uh, French and the US, if they believe that the Bolsheviks are going to fall, why do they feel this intervention is necessary at this time and point? And I can understand why they decide to intervene, because they really do believe the Bolsheviks are going to fall. But again, I'm, I kind of wondered why they initially thought they needed to do this. Well, at this stage, early 1918, the war with Germany is still obviously ongoing and reaching a crisis point. You know, Ludendorff's preparing his big spring offensives. And the for France, Britain and America, which has just entered the war, their, their entire focus is on beating Germany, is on Germany. Russia is an absolutely secondary issue. So what they want to do is 
put anybody in power in Moscow, it doesn't matter who, who will re-energise the Eastern Front, pull the army back together, start fighting Germany again. Because already by now, with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, you've got German divisions being trods, you know, that were on the Eastern Front going back west, you know, and, and joining in the fight in France and Flanders. That's the overwhelming priority of the Allies. The other issue is these large supplies of military equipment and arms, which the Allies have been sending Russia all through the First World War, and they've they're, they're piled up awaiting distribution in these two Arctic ports, Murmansk and Archangel, and also in Vladivostok on the Pacific. And the, the nightmare scenario is that the Bolsheviks hand over these very large, large dumps of material to, to Germany. And, that, and so the very first action of what then grows into this large-scale intervention is, is Allied warships sending small groups of Marines ashore at these ports to simply take control of the warehouses. I tell you what is so interesting about all of this is one the decision to to become involved in this, how they configured themselves, and I'm talking about the Western governments to become involved. It was Lloyd George and Clemenceau of France that was having to talk Woodrow Wilson into actually joining the expedition at this point. Is that correct? That's exactly right. The most belligerent of the three big Western leaders is Clemenceau of France, because France is occupied by Germany. It's lost most, the more of its young men even than Britain. And also, not unimportantly, Trotsky has announced that the, new Ru- that the Soviet government is not going to honour Russian government bonds, which lots of French small savers have put all their money in. So it's been a big economic blow to France, um, the Russian Revolution. So Clemenceau is the most belligerent. Lloyd George sort of havers. He's not sure. He can't really make up his mind. But definitely anti is Wilson. In his first term, he had had his fingers burned when he tried to intervene in Mexico. That had been a failure. And he kept out of the First World War for as long as possible. Um, and he generally regarded the whole, the sort of you know the chaos that was breaking out in Russia as uh, just sort of too much for us to get him involved with. You know, a lot of impossible folks. He said about the situation um, right. to, to one of his confidants. Um, later on, he talks to House Colonel House, his sort of friend and advisor, and he's been. He says, oh, "I've been sweating blood about what to do in Russia, but it goes to pieces like quicksilver under my hands." You know, he's thinking. You can. There's a nice image um, that's sort of tr- trickling right. through his fingers. Right. So he it can never so get accurate. a grip on it. Right. It's ch- and so there's massive diplomatic pressure on him to join in an intervention. Um, all through the spring of 1918. And what changes Wilson's mind is the Czech Rising, which is this extraordinary event, which is the takeover of the entire Trans-Siberian Railway and Vladivostok by regiments of Czech soldiers, about 50,000 of them, who had been fighting in the Tsarist army against their 
Austro-Hungarian overlords. These yeah, this is incredible. Traps are in your book. Yeah, this is incredible. Yeah. That when the Russian army fell to pieces and then the Bolsheviks made peace with Germany, the Czechs kept to their units. They they didn't desert. They didn't break up. So they kept their troop trains, kept their arms, stayed mm-hmm. organized. And their one wish at that stage was to get back to Europe as soon as possible and join in the creation of Czechoslovakia. Uh, and they couldn't obviously go west because the war's still going on and Germany and Austria in the way, you know, for, for whom they are traitors. So instead, they go east in their troop trains towards Vladivostok with the idea of taking ship all the way back to Europe. They're sort of strung out along these thousands of miles of railway line in the spring of 1918 when Trotsky decides they're a, they're a danger and orders the local, the, the Bolshevik supporting local governments in the towns along the railway uh, to disarm them and break them up and conscript them um, into his nascent Red Army. Czechs are having none of this. They carry on east, fighting their way east this time, and they take over one by one in short order all these towns, the entire length of the Trans-Siberian. It's quite extraordinary. And in July, they get Vladivostok. For Wilson, this changes the calculus because, first of all, the Czechs are one of his gallant, small, you know, self-determining nations of his sure. 14 points. 14 B. points, right. Yeah, sure. And B, they control Vladivostok. So any American troops that are landed there are now sure of a welcome. And so finally, he says, yes, we will send American troops to Siberia, to the Russian Far East, and also to the north, up to Archangel and Murmansk, where the British forces are already active. I think it's very interesting is shadow that goes across your book. And I think it's a shadow that today, this moment that we are still dealing with. And that was basically, and you bring it out time and time again, was the incomprehension of the West of the Russia and the Russian experience of the of what Russia wanted to understand the Russian mentality, to understand what was needed. And it really from Wilson saying, you know, it's like quicksilver in my hand. Russia's like quicksilver, you know, to I think even today, as we watch U.S. politicians, EU politicians, it's still that really that same thing that resonates, that there's really this kind of not really understanding Russia and Russia's ideas and what they want and their ambitions and goals. And you really bring that out in this book. As I mean, I found very interesting the relationship between British and American officers and their white Russians, their anti-Bolshevik yes. Russian allies, where, you know, in, in these Russian forces that we're supporting, you know, chiefly in the North Siberia and in Ukraine, the white cause begins to founder and the white army start to retreat. Obviously, relations get worse and there's lots of, you know, sort of mutual blaming sort of blame shifting. But even, you know, from the beginning, relations are pretty bad. Some of these allied officers, I mean, the British in particular, are ideologically committees. You know, they they genuinely fear um, revolution at home and they think that by helping the whites and you know, overthrowing the Bolsheviks, they're sort of, you know, guarding their own way of life. 
but most are just career soldiers who are there because they've been sent there and wish they were in at the kill in Germany or once the armistice happens you know they're just there to some, you know get some more action in and you know active command time in and earn, earn some promotion you know get some promotion possibilities they're not committed and they you get you get it from the diaries they land in Odessa or another Sisk or ever you know go and check in at their own HQ and then they go and meet all their Russian colleagues and they don't like them. They don't. Right. They don't. In in, in general. And this feeling is mutual. So in general, you know, we regard the the Russians, the white Russians, as sort of drunk, disorganised, reactionary. They regard us as ignorant, naive, desperately arrogant and condescending. And everybody's right. All these things. I was going to say, there's truth in all, in all isn't there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is so funny. You know, it's, it's not at all. It's not at all a happy relationship. You know, right, right from the beginning. That's well. Your story is your uh, book is so it's it's kind of a crazy patchwork of experiences of the daily interactions between not not soldier to soldier, but between civilians and soldiers. It's a war story told not from unit to unit, but really from how the people are interacting with each other, soldiers to civilians, civilians to soldiers. And that's an interesting point in your book. Some of the rather touching bits of the books are the, you know, the accounts soldiers give of the families they're living with, particularly up in the north. They're billeted in villages, in these remote Arctic villages on the on the rivers mostly, you know, deep, deep in woods. And they're put with families and they get to know them quite well. And so you get little, you know, little Masha sort of, you know, I gave her this today or little Peter's sort of learned a few words of English and, you know, I'm teaching him this and, you know, quite nice interactions and sharing rations and little Christmas parties at Christmas time and so on. You know, the villagers sort of give as good as they get as well. Of course, it's an unequal relationship. So one British sergeant, you know, he notes that the first two words of Russian he he learns are loshad, which is horse, and sechas, which is now. <laughs> you know, he's he's requisitioning transport. But you know, people get to know they they admire the peasantry that they're living amongst. They they really admire their resourcefulness, their craftsmanship, their toughness. You know, what well, something that gets remarked on again and again is is you know how skillful local villagers are with an axe. You know, again and again, people say it's extraordinary that with no tool but an axe, they can build a bridge in three days, which will take a truck and log houses and all that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, no need for a corps of engineers. You know, it's a very common remark. And in the in the towns, of course, where the where the Allies have their headquarters, the sort of officers are are, are greeted by the local sort of middle classes, which includes lots of refugees from, you know, Bolshevik-held Russia, uh, like saviors, of course. So it's an endless round of tea parties and and charity sort of evenings and picnics and little outings and love affairs, of course. You know, they're also viewed as a ticket out of the, you know, these are useful contacts. They might be a ticket out of the country for you if, you know, the worst comes to the worst. You know, their diaries are full of quite a lot. You know, they have a deal of fun. Um, they, you know, they have an active social life when we're not at the front. And um, 
And also do a lot of shooting, a lot of sport. Shooting is a massive thing. <laughs> in all the diaries, they all go off shooting, even in the middle of winter, the most horrible cold. Um, you know, they'll set off voluntarily for fun, you know, into <laughs> the middle of some frozen bog, you know, and sort of spend the whole day there, sort of crouched in the reeds, sort of looking for snipe or something. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, but hey. <laughs> well, it's funny because... They were tougher than we are. They, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, it's funny because reading your book, I, I got cold. I mean, just, and you, you talk about some of the dire situations they I mean it is it's extreme cold it's typhus laden Spanish flu is raging it is these are horrible conditions by anybody's standards that these yeah. people are not only living in but they're fighting in that these British American and French soldiers have been introduced into and it's it's a shock isn't it it's 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 it gets nasty um in the wind midwinter of 1918 to, to um, up in the north, particularly, because the lines have been vastly overextended by the first um, British general, a man called Poole, to land in Archangel. He he pushed his troops right down the railway, hundreds of miles, right down the rivers, hundreds of miles, and then should have withdrawn them again when winter set in and didn't. So they, they just sort of dug in where they happened to be. Um, it wasn't a unified front. It was like sort of fingers of a hand. You know, there was no communication between between these different groups. And of course, then you get sort of wilderness guerrilla warfare. So you get patrols being ambushed, you know, rivers which had been defences freeze and then stop being defences. There's nothing to stop the enemy coming over them. You know, there's frostbite, mutilation of bodies, a lot of, there's mutilation of bodies by the enemy. There's prisoner killings by us, by by the Russians, which we turn a blind eye to. Delightful. Yeah, delightful. Five white Russians. Yeah. And also, it's the American troop ships bring Spanish flu with them, which first broke out. I think it was in Kansas. You'd probably be able to tell me in a in an army camp there. That's the first sort of recorded case I, of the, of the Spanish flu. I think that's flu. where it did. Yeah, I think that's where it did break out. So, so they're they're already beginning to die of Spanish flu on the ships over. They die in quite lot in large numbers in Archangel. Carry on dying on their sort of barges, which they're being taken down the rivers on, and then of course it spreads to the local population and. You have descriptions of it, like there's a little town called Shenkursk, a lovely place I, I went to. And um, by sort of December, you know, there are funeral processions in the streets every day and the, the morgues are full and so on. Yes. Um, and, and, the, and the Americans, uh, the, the medical officers do what they can for the civilian population, but, you know, they're not out in the villages and they're, you know, they haven't got the capacity to, to, to really do anything much to prevent this. The Red Cross was a real hero, too, during this war. I mean, you mentioned a lot of times the Red Cross intervention, a little known fact that I didn't understand. Yeah, the, yeah, the typhus train, the Great White Train, as it was called. And he was a num- he was Swiss-American, I think, Red Cross doctor who had founded one of the first modern hospitals in Tokyo. And he was brought on board to, to try and fight typhus in in Siberia. Of course, wherever you've got, you know, trifles is spread by lice. So right. wherever you've got refugee flows and prisons as well spreads, you know, wherever you've got people are crowded and they're not able to wash. There's the most appalling typhus epidemic that winter of 1918 to 19, which kills millions. You know, it's a much, much bigger killer than the, than the fighting of the civil war. Oof. And he sets up basically a sort of mobile treatment and delousing station, this big train, and it's got sort of great 
It's got sort of steam washers for people's clothes. It's got a place where everybody's heads can be shaved. It's, it dispenses drugs, sets up hospitals as well, as well. And that train sort of chugs back and forth up and down the Trans-Siberian basically for Oh, about a year and a half. And probably, I mean, we don't have numbers, but it probably, it was a, it was a mixture of American and um, Russian doctors aboard and, and, and Europeans too. And that probably saved more lives and you know, did more good than any other aspect of the intervention. Yeah, the unforeseen consequences were, I think I just read that typhus is, is breaking out now in Gaza. So, I mean, just these, you know, horrors upon horrors. You talk about something I had never heard about. Well, there's two things. The armored train warfare. I didn't, I had never heard of this. And I actually talked to my husband about it and said, yeah, it was actually not uncommon for two trains to try to battle it out against each other. Yeah, I have some wonderful descriptions of armored right, train warfare. Right, you do. Warfare. You really do. So yeah. the armored trains start out as these very homemade affairs. So you've got an ordinary steam train with its flatbeds and both sides would sort of reinforce the flatbeds with logs and they'd sort of put extra sort of metal, a sort of sheeting um, sort of round the locomotive and so on as well. And then you'd, you'd plant a gun on the flatbeds. Um, and then you'd have some sort of carriages full of infantry as well with, again, everything sort of uh, sheeting all over it in little sort of loopholes. Uh, so you've got these ordinary, ordinary you know, sort of uh, goods trains and, and passenger trains converted into these armoured trains, and they get more sophisticated as the war carries on. But what they would do is you'd have two of them and they would meet and they would basically fire at each other. But there was a lot of hide and seek. You know, you'd sort of creak up very closely, you know, and, and not turn the corner because the other lot would see you. And you'd and you'd use these. The drivers got very skilled in not letting puffs of steam come up, you know, to give their position away. And so there was a lot of sort of hiding in sidings and sort of creeping forwards, you know, sending the infantry to have a look, trying to spot the other train coming back again. Um, and a lot of pulling up rails, of course. So if you were retreating, another armoured train was chasing you, you'd pull up the rails behind you. And the pursuer's job was to repair the rails again and then to steam on forwards and you know, try and get within range. Um, so That's these fun. sort of long, these long range artillery duels between these sort of these, these moving trains would go on for days and days. A lot of burning bridges, obviously, as well. You know, you'd burn the bridge behind you and then they'd have to repair the bridge. And it was very hard to, it, particularly in woodland where you couldn't see. Most of these, I mean, if you've ever been on a on the Trans-Siberian, you'll know, you know, it's it's absolutely there are trees right by the line. It's like going down a sort of narrow corridor. It's like a tunnel. Yeah. It's like, a, like it's like a tunnel. So right. it wasn't very deadly. Usually neither side really managed to hit the other very often. It would go on for days and days. It was certainly extremely uncomfortable. One of the very dark chapters of this book or the subtext of this book is the Jewish pogroms that happened and actually committed as much by the Reds as it was by the Whites. And the Whites were supported by the Allies, by the Allied intervention, and these pogroms were going on. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that was and why, why it occurred, actually? There's a long history in Russia of scapegoating Jews in times of crisis. So when Tsar Alexander II was assassinated by a, a sort of a, a multi-ethnic, it wasn't particularly Jewish, anarchist group in 1881. There was a big wave of violence against Jews. And again, 1904 to 5, do you remember when there were big 
pro-democracy demonstrations in the cities and, and Nicholas II temporarily made some sort of political concessions. Again, there, big wave of violence against Jews. But those two lots of pogroms mostly involved, I mean, some killing, but mostly just beating people up and destruction of property. You know, actual actual um, death tolls were small. However, in 1919, when the German troops that had been occupying Ukraine uh, and Belarus under the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, when they withdrew, you got this absolute warlordism breaking out in right. what's now Ukraine. You got it was the most violent, you know. It was the most violent theatre of the civil war. So you've got Red Army, White Army, you've got the Ukrainian, you've got two Ukrainian national armies, you've got the Polish army, the new Polish army, and you've got a whole bunch of warlords who sort of swap sides back and forth. And all these groups fight all over Ukraine. I mean, Kiev in, in 1919 swaps control of Kiev changes something like 13 times. Wow. Okay. 13 changes of power. People dispute, is it like 10 changes or was it 15 changes? Depends on what you count. Through all this, the Jews are victimized by everyone. Okay. All sides massacre Jewish civilians, massacres and mass rapes. Okay. And as, as well as the usual sort of setting fire to shops and so on. And this includes the whites, the volunteer army and its Cossack allies, who from, from the Kuban um, and from the Don, so from just east of northeast of the Black Sea in what's now Russia. So they, too, perpetrate horrible massacres, not only as they're retreating in the sort of bitterness of defeat, but as they are advancing. You know, so they are being supported by the British by this stage. The Americans and the French have dropped out by now. But Britain is supplying them with money, with arms, with uniforms, uh, with training, with medical equipment, with food, with everything. There was no reason why Britain could have not have said to them, unless these massacres of civilians stop, we are withdrawing military aid. You know, Britain has right. the whip hand at this stage. They're entirely dependent on British supplies and all these warships coming into the now open Black Sea and dumping stuff off at Novorossiysk. This does not happen. You know, the killing, we think it's somewhere between 100 and 200,000 Jewish civilians mm. killed in the mm. period, you know, by all sides. Right. Yeah. Um, sure. And you know, dying directly or indirectly as a result of the pogrom. A lot of people have died die of injuries later, obviously. And from the top to the bottom, British, you know, the, from the military up to the, you know, to the politicians in Westminster, the Brits, we deny it. We deny the pogroms are happening. We cut the excesses is the euphemism of the time. We say either no, they're not happening. This is false news when Jewish organisations protest, or it's exaggerated. No, this is exaggerated. Right. Or Yes, unfortunately, it is happening a bit, but Denikins, you know, who's the white leader in the South, is doing his best to control them. Or it's the fault of the Jews themselves for being revolutionaries. One particular one, the nervous panicking of the Jews is, is fanning the violence. <laughs> There's a classic example of victim blaming. And 
it you know that the whites were extremely anti-Semitic. You know that the Jew equals Bolshevik trope, which was demonstrably untrue. You know, a lot, right. lot of the leading Bolsheviks did have Jewish heritage, but that did not mean that most Jews were Bolshevik. In fact, they were mostly small businessmen. They're extremely anti-Bolshevik. The whites, for them, this, you know, the Jews made the revolution idea, which excused them from looking at the real reasons behind the revolution um, and why the old you know, regime had collapsed so quickly. That was absolutely central part of their program, of their propaganda, of their ideology, of their sort of whole mindset. And the British were shocked by it. They found it paranoid, crazy, you know, unpleasant. They particularly resented it when pressure was put on them to, for example, sack their own Jewish interpreters or send home Jewish officers, which happened, British Jewish officers. Right, right. Um, but they themselves were casual anti-Semites also. So their, their diaries and letters are littered with, you know, silly period anti-Semitic jibes. I mean, as, as one would expect of the period, but nonetheless unpleasant. And, and they turned a blind eye what was going on. So the Westminster denied it. You know, Churchill, who was the great cheerleader within Lloyd George's cabinet, right, sure. intervention, he avoided, you know, dodged questions in the House of Commons and so on. Sent these sort of token occasional telegram to Denikin and other Russian generals saying, can, can you please sort of rein your men in? Because it makes it politically difficult for me here at home. We can see from the Russian side that they knew they didn't they didn't have to take this seriously. They actually compare the British with the Americans. The American general in Siberia really was really outspoken on this issue. And he he's a man called Graves. Graves, um, yeah. General Graves, right. William, William Graves. Right. Uh, I, so the whites win. The whites lose. And that's a good question that you asked yourself. The whites lose. The interventionists go home. But what I find is your conclusion is very interesting. What was the what was the significance of this in historical terms? What was the influence in the years going forward? And how does this this really kind of weird pocket of history, how does it affect us today? Or does it? It was conveniently forgotten. I mean, it was obviously a humiliating failure. So all that the generals and the politicians involved all distanced themselves afterwards. And the sort of direct participants tended to give it, you know, a sentence or two at most of their memoirs. And, you know, before moving on to the next thing I did. And, you know, no campaign medals were issued. There was no official history written up. So it was, if you look on um, First World War memorials, uh, in, in Britain, you'll see uh, you know, all these sort of so and so, you know, which has where they died, Ypres, or, you know, wherever, and and all these familiar French names. You'll suddenly get Murmansk in there. The intervention dead were just sort of pushed in with the Great War dead, you know, and the whole the whole thing was sort of conveniently forgotten. But it did have some very long term effects during the Cold War. Left wing historians here blamed it on bad western soviet relations and they and they also they all they said you know had had we not tried to strangle the revolution in its cradle the, the soviet union would be a better friendlier place now i, I think that's nonsense because you know Lenin and Trotsky used political violence from the start, and they were explicitly dedicated to worldwide revolution. Right, um, sure. It's, mm -hmm. it was, you know, the Soviet Union was never going to be a friendly diplomatic partner. But where 
where it, what it did do the intervention was radicalize and destabilize in Europe. The relevance for Russian Western relations now, I think, is that I mean, Putin is he's the heir of the whites. You know, he right from the beginning he resurrected czarist symbols. You know, oh, the interesting! Right? Eagle, the he tricolor, did, right? and so on. But his his world view and his whole psychology it's incredibly reminiscent of the whites. It, it's that deep sort of grievance and sort of chippiness and sort of sense of injury towards the West. You know, the whites sort of felt you know that that they've been betrayed by the West. You know, we spilt rivers of blood for you back in 1916, and then you pulled out and left us to our fate right. in 1920 at the end of. The Civil War, and also that feeling of you know being condescended to by the West, of you know the arrogant West, not taking Russia seriously, not respecting Russia as a sort of big strong country. You know that's that's incredibly much part of the white sort of psychology, and it's there in all the memoirs of all these white generals, really resenting being dictated to by some young youngish, you know, British. Brigadier General, not even forty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one example I'm thinking of. You know, right. being t- being told what to do, and and also, I mean, the ultranationalism, obviously, the the ultranationalism, the the sort of you know the emptiness of the promises. You know, the white the whites failed because because they had no political program. You know, they particular in particular wouldn't embrace land reform, which was politically vital. Nobody was going to remain in power who didn't let the peasants hang on to that land, which they'd taken from their landowners all the fo- you know, in 1917. These empty promises of, of you know, it's make Russia great again promises, or, you know, back then and now, a century later, with nothing behind them except for this sort of, sort of, you are a great people, the world must respect and fear you, right. you know. Boy. And, and, and also, I mean, obviously with Putin, the, his inability to recognise the legitimacy of of a Ukrainian state, um, you know, the whites would have won, would very likely have won, if they had negotiated with the Finns, the Ukrainians, the Georgians, and so on, you know, all the non-Russian nationalities, and built a coalition against the Bolsheviks and said, "You fight for us. Um, you help us retake Moscow and Petersburg. You will have independence or at least autonomy." Afterwards, the whites would not even contemplate this. And if the Allies were endlessly trying to get them to negotiate with the other these other national armies, the little you know the Estonian army, right. the Georgian okay. army, and so on. The whites absolutely they took this as the very idea as an insult. You know, Great was Russia, one and one and indivisible was their motto. And the idea that sort of Estonia had even such a thing as an intelligentsia. They utterly scoffed at, you know, Mannerheim in Finland, laying down conditions for us. You know, you'd have thought that Russia, you know, Finland had conquered great Russia. That attitude, just that sheer out of touchness. Right. <laughs> Re the non-Russian nationalities, again, incredibly reminiscent of Putin. Of Putin, yeah. Every nation has to guard against national arrogance. And wow. And here we are again in Russia a hundred years later, so 120 years later. But Anna, this has been a great interview. And to my listening audience, this really is a charming book because you really concentrate on the people. If you're looking for something out there for your history reader, it's a nasty little war. The West Bite 
to reverse the Russian Revolution, and it's put out by the fabulous Basic Books. Basic Books is publishing a lot of great material these days. I think you could probably get it on the Basic Books, or you can get it at Amazon or your local book dealer, which we always support, our independent book dealers. Anna, thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again. I'd love to have you back on to talk about the history of Ukraine. I would love to do that. And thank you very much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. Fascinating conversation. Thank you. You, uh, Thank you. We'll see you soon. God bless. 